Hello, my name is Arkan Fung, and I'm a faculty member here at the Kennedy School, and I'm here with my good friend Mary Graham. We co-direct the Transparency Policy Project of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at the Kennedy School. Mary has just written a fantastic new book called Presidential, President's Secrets, The Use and Abuse of Hidden Power. Um, Mary, I'm delighted that you're here with us today, and I'd just like to uh, begin by asking you a few questions. Now, uh, your book is uh, an historical overview of all of uh, all of American history, presidents since George Washington, and some of them are some presidents keep more secrets. For some, it's important to be more open with the American public. Can you talk about in your research and doing the book? What are some of the harms that have come to America, some of the really bad things that have happened to Americans because some presidents kept too many secrets? That's a really good question. You know, I think the one that was most serious for the longest time was President Woodrow Wilson's attempt, successful attempt to keep secret his, the massive stroke that he had in October of 1919. He was bedridden for a couple of months, and then he really served as an irrational president for the next more than a year. He would uh, do diatribes against people he disagreed with. He fired his secretary of state for holding cabinet meetings when the president wasn't there. Of course, the president was bedridden at the time. He refused to negotiate with the Republican Senate the League of Nations, which he had hoped would be his legacy. And he, uh, he was paranoid, he was depressed, and in a, the nation really lost its president without knowing it. So I would say that's true. A better known story is Lyndon Johnson's efforts to keep secret what was really happening in Vietnam, which kept the American people from making an informed decision about that war. There are lots of other uh, examples President Clinton, of course, kept secret affairs. Um, President uh, Bush kept secret the changes in the rules for surveillance and detention and uh, interrogation when we were fighting a new, what was really a new kind of war, the war on terror. And some of those, uh, some of those consequences really go to trust. So democracy doesn't work unless the American people trust the government. And these incidents, like Nixon keeping secret the Watergate uh, burglary, trying to, trying to keep secret the White House involvement in the Watergate uh, burglary, really went are part of why the American people's trust in the government has declined over the last several years. Yeah, that's really important. Now, I think almost everyone would agree that uh, every president ought to keep some things secret from the American public. For instance, in military affairs, it would be self-defeating if all of our military plans were available for the, uh, to the American public because then presumably they would also be available to our adversaries. And then there's uh, some things that just shouldn't happen or should definitely be public if they do happen, like the Watergate break-in probably shouldn't have, uh, definitely shouldn't have happened. And then there are some things that are kind of on the line. So you and I, I think we regard our, our own medical histories as our personal business and uh, shouldn't be public for everyone to view. And presidents, of course, are much more public figures than you and I, but 
nevertheless might ought to have some privacy with regard to some of their affairs, medical, etc. So how do you think about the line between what's acceptable for a president to keep secret and what a president should or should have to tell the American public? Well, you know, it's changed over time. And you can see, even from the early days of the Trump presidency, in the third week of his presidency, there was a robust debate about whether he was wearing a bathrobe when he was walking around the, the residence at, in, the, in the evening. And as we know, President Obama really had trouble sneaking out for a hamburger because his staff would send around a message saying, the bear is on the loose. <laughs> so tech, the tech, digital technology in our 24-hour news cycle has certainly worked against the privacy uh, of, of the president. But on more serious matters, it's been true from the beginning of the country and was really established first by George Washington that military operations and diplomatic negotiations uh, must be done in secret in order to, to be effective. And um, presidents in general have, um, through the first hundred years, stayed with that idea that the default was open government but that there were these exceptions, and they were narrow exceptions, and they were secrecy was pretty well bounded in the first hundred years. I think it's still true today that the American people would agree that the names of undercover agents, the nuclear codes, the weapons technology, uh, would all have to be kept secret. So my sense is that there's a rough consensus about mm. what needs to be kept secret. But it has also changed with uh, technology and it's changed with president's decisions. And that's really what this book is about. For example, in the Cold War, there gradually developed a double standard where American people were supposed to know some policies and debate some policies. But there were some policies, for example, plots to assassinate foreign leaders, bribery, election fixing in foreign countries but the American people were not supposed to ever know anything about. So this kind of double standard developed where some policies could be secret and some policies uh, would be open. And it was only in the 1970s, in the wake of the Watergate scandal, that there was an attempt to put some greater limits on secrecy. We invented the congressional intelligence committees. We invented the foreign intelligence uh, court. There was, were requirements that the president approve covert actions. So that, that really was a shift back toward um, limiting president's mm -hmm. secrecy. And now we're in the midst of deciding what secrecy should look like for the digital age. And we have some clues from President Obama's and President Bush's presidencies, but we're still in the process of deciding that. And that's one reason that it's so important to think about secrecy right now. Yeah, very good. Now, you'd think that every president would want to keep more secrets and even more secrets than their predecessor was able to keep because um, being more open creates a lot of problems if you're president. <laughs> People start to question you at every every single turn. There's policies that have to be debated now that they're out in the open, whereas if they were not out in the open, maybe you could just act as president. But one surprise to me a little bit is that in your book, you that's that's not what you find. You find several presidents who actually champion more openness with the public. Uh, the very first president, George Washington, you spend a lot of time talking about. You also talk about Gerald Ford as somebody who 
uh, for whom it was important to be more open, certainly than his predecessor, and then also President Obama, in some regards, more open, in some regards, less so. Why are some presidents, why do they have a, a desire to be more open when, when you think all of their self-interest goes the other way? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, this is really what's kept me interested for several years in this topic because these are, on the whole, very human stories. These are ordinary men who find themselves serving in the nation's highest office, facing crises they never expected to face. And this is really a study of character, what happens when character meets crisis. The, a lot of it does have to do with the times they lived in. So, for example, George Washington not only had a sense of humility, he was less educated than the people he was working with, but also at that time there was an accusation that he might be trying to be a monarch. So there was a strong incentive for him to show mm. that he wasn't trying to exercise uh, outsized power. He also just was a far-sighted person and, and he, he understood that, that when he was making a decision that it was not uh, just for that day. It was setting a precedent for the rest of the country. It was in the first, the nation's first military crisis when uh, troops were wiped out in an Indian raid and Congress demanded all the confidential correspondence to find out why that had happened, that Johnson, that sorry, that Washington said uh, in, in responding and giving Congress all of that correspondence that the, um, sorry, <laughs> that Washington said in giving uh, Congress all of that correspondence that Congress had a right to oversee the affairs of the executive branch. He said that, you know, boldly in a statement. He also was the kind of person who liked advice. So he established cabinet government. There's nothing in the Constitution about cabinet government. But Washington meticulously sought the advice of his department heads before he made uh, any kind of decision. So s some of it is, is character. Um, mm -hmm. Gerald Ford was caught, you know, in the rebound uh, uh, oh, after, the, after the Nixon, after Watergate, and Watergate, of course, led to exposure of the CIA and the NSA's um, illegal activities, and at least uh, I, I would say in, in, in a violation of their their charters. So there was again a, a political moment when it made sense to be more open, but he was a man universally admired for his candor and his integrity. So again, I think you have to go back to character. And mm. President Obama, uh, trained as a constitutional lawyer, particularly concerned with tying the measures against terrorism to the national and international law, I think did uh, did a service to the nation also by bringing the government into the digital age. Uh, he got caught trying to keep secret policies, uh, for example, the cyber warfare ground rules or the drone ground rules, because that was kind of the 20th century rule that it was okay to have secretive policies and secretive oversight. He was very strong on the idea that there would always be oversight by the courts and Congress, but it was often done behind closed doors. And that that doesn't work anymore, He was, as he found, because those secrets were revealed. And he really lost opportunities for leadership because his opponents or the media decided when and how to reveal that mm. information. So. I'd, one of the conclusions I was surprised to reach is that secrecy doesn't really work 
very well anymore in the digital age. Mm. And uh, secrecy about operations, yes, but secrecy about policies really doesn't work. It's hard to keep a secret for very long these days. It's hard to keep a secret. So let's turn to the current moment. Um, if you have some presidents who are disposed to openness on one side of the spectrum, maybe Gerald Ford and, and George Washington and perhaps Barack Obama, and then some presidents, many presidents who are disposed to keep things pretty close. Woodrow Wilson in the, in the health case, but many others, um, Lyndon Johnson, uh, many, many others. Um, how do you think about Donald Trump along that spectrum? I, uh, it's, it's to me a little bit of a puzzle because part of his appeal to many of his supporters was that he uh, was very plain spoken on the campaign trail, told things like it was, was not bound by constraints of political correctness, whereas um, some of the accusations against Secretary Clinton, candidate Clinton, were uh, the secrecy around the Clinton Foundation, around the email servers, et cetera. And so from that perspective, from the campaign perspective, you might expect some of his supporters to expect more openness, but then there is evidence to the contrary also, uh, the failure to release the tax returns, the health records, et cetera. So it's early days yet to be sure, but if you had to look forward, what would be your expectations for presidential secrecy under the Trump administration? So it is early days. What I think we've seen so far that is different from any other president we've had is this odd combination of swamping the public with distracting <laughs> information at the same time practicing particularly destructive kinds of secrecy. So in the, his recent news conference, there was real news about the Affordable Care Act, about a, a promise of a new immigration order but it was buried under an avalanche of invective. He insulted an African-American reporter. He delivered another diatribe against the, the media. He made another slap at uh, judges. And that kind of government by name calling is not a foreign policy, and it's not an agenda to help working people. It's a little hard to tell so far how much of that's intent and how much of it's some combination of inexperience and personality. Mm -hmm. So I think time, time will tell, but this is, this is a unique president in that way. And I think we have to worry about his track record in not revealing his taxes, which at the moment are particularly important because they would bear on the conflicts between his business life and his governance. He is very reluctant to talk about his health, even though he's the oldest president that we've ever elected. And uh, uh, for a president with that kind of demeanor, he, he also doesn't like to debate. I, I think it's apparent that he often gets angry, and this was also true in his business life. He often is angry about people who, with people who have opposing views. So looking at history, I, I think you would have to say that secrecy will be very, very tempting to Mr. <laughs> Trump as a way of avoiding democratic debate. Yes, yes. And what would your advice to him be given that uh, maybe it's unfortunate for him that the, the time in which he's president, as you were saying, it's so much more difficult to keep a secret, at least for very long. And do you think that 
Do you think that secrecy is just much more of a losing proposition now for presidents because of technology, because of the rapid flows of information, because of even the ease of whistleblowing, as we've seen in several of the prominent whistleblowing cases under the Obama administration and leak cases under the Obama administration? Is secrecy just, is it just much more difficult, even if you want to do it? It is more difficult, but secrecy is still essential to military operations, diplomatic negotiations. Mr. Trump deserves to have confidential conversations with his, his advisors. So in that sense, secrecy is still essential to democracy. But excessive secrecy is still the greatest danger to democracy because it's absolute power. Congress and the courts can't review something that they don't know. It cancels constitutional checks. So it allows the president to exercise arbitrary power. The complications of the time we live in is that it's harder to keep those essential secrets. Mm. So we're having trouble keeping secret um, our cybersecurity plans. Uh, it's there's a lot of hacking of in the Defense Department, uh, and there's a kind of a cyber arms race that seems to be developing where we need to stay a step ahead of the hackers. So it's getting much harder to control the essential secrets that make the democracy work. I would, my suggestion to <clears throat> Mr. Trump would be that he study the Bush and Obama administrations and what happened to their attempts to keep secret policies. Secret operations certainly need to be kept secret. Um, operations that involve the military or diplomacy. But, uh, but, but President uh, Trump needs to understand that you can no longer keep secret mm. major policy changes <clears throat> excuse me, especially when they involve Americans' rights and values. Yes, very good. Now, yours is a, um, a reality-based book in that <laughs> the episodes that you talk about, uh, oftentimes even as they were happening, but certainly in, histor in historical retrospect, it seems like they're was a, a fact of the matter and presidents chose to keep that secret or tried to keep that secret or they didn't. The Gulf of Tonkin incident, uh, that Woodrow Wilson had a stroke. These are um, things that actually happen. <laughs> now, uh, part of the current uh, news environment, which makes things very confusing, is that we have fundamental disagreement on what actually happened and what ha didn't happen. And so Pizzagate, I think, you know, different segments of the American population believe that that happened, that that's a reality or that it's not. Um, if you uh, I saw a film about Waco uh, yesterday and part of the American population believes that the people, the Branch Davidians set the fire that mm -hmm. ended up killing dozens and dozens of people. Other people believe that the government set the fire as part of the um, attack on the compound. So they're. So part of the dynamic of somebody revealing a secret is oftentimes discovering a conspiracy, but it's we don't really know, or at least there's significant disagreement about whether or not that thing actually happened. It seems maybe much more than in some periods in the past because of the fragmentation of the news environment, et cetera, fake news. So how do you think about secrecy, because secrecy is the revelation of some truth that actually is a truth. <laughs> now, it's harder to get consensus on what actually is a truth or not. So how do you think about secrecy in that context? If a Gulf of Tonkin 
incident were revealed now, I think perhaps the discussion would be much, much more extended about who shot at who and whether it actually happened or whether it's doctored or there, there would be just much more debate about the facts of the matter. Isn't it interesting that we say we're living in the information age and yet there seems much more dispute about what we used to think were indisputable <laughs> facts. So I don't think that propaganda is new. I don't think that what they say in Washington is spinning is new. It interests me that the term fake news has now been redefined three times in the last couple of years. At first, it was the, a term that described the onion or the daily show. So in, in that sense... Which you know, everyone agreed was fake. <laughs> as far as we know, everyone <laughs> yeah. agreed that was fake. So the stories included um, President Obama's pet drone following him out of, the, <laughs> out, of, out of the White House. One of my favorites was when one of the voting machines actually won the election. <laughs> the headline was, Voting Machines Elect One of Their Own. <laughs> uh, and then it was redefined maybe a year and a half ago as this kind of cottage industry where people were often for profit, but sometimes with political motives, uh, intentionally creating stories that they knew weren't true and putting them, putting them out. It really was kind of an entrepreneurial activity. And now it's used um, by our president and by others to define uh, something that you don't like that somebody else said and particularly in his case, it's, some, it's often someone trying, uh, the news media, trying to correct something that he said and he feels that the correction is also not true and therefore calls that fake news. My suggestion is we retire the term. <laughs> I don't think it has any meaning anymore. And I, and I do think over time we'll get better at fact checking. You know, it's, we do have this richness of diverse information and in the long run that's gotta be good for for all of us, but it is harder to tell truth from spin and truth from fiction. But the fact the fact checking will will improve. We're we're still in the early days. Very good. Well, I'm looking forward to the uh, the the next edition or the epilogue of your book that addresses this <laughs> this a little bit of a paradox that uh, secrets will much more easily out, but when they do out, at least for this particular moment, there will be disagreement about whether the thing that was outed actually happened or not. <laughs> Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Thank you very much, Thank Mary you. Graham. Thank you. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. For more information about the Ash Center, upcoming events, and future podcasts, please visit our website, ash.harvard.edu, and follow us on social media at Harvard Ash.